will discuss um, policy considerations and conclusions um, of um, our discussion today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to host um, three uh, excellent speakers, and we will, uh, in fact, um, uh, do the presentations in reverse order um, to let uh, our guest from the Bank of Japan, Koji Nakamura, who is the head of the Director General of the Research Department at the Bank of Japan, uh, start the discussion. Uh, so thank you very much for coming uh, from so far and um, following um, uh, Koji's presentation, uh, uh, Remy Leka uh, will give a presentation. He is um, the head of the Structural Policy Analysis Division at the Banque de France, uh, the French uh, Central Bank. And last but not least, Benyat Bilbao is a senior economist of the European Commission. Uh, DG Research um, uh, will, will share his uh, thinking with us. And again, um, we, we reverse the order to start with, uh, uh, with our guest from far away. Um, thank you so much, Koji, for, uh, for coming from so, so far away uh, uh, to talk to us about innovation policy. Um, I think important error uh, also in, in, the, in the three arrows um, uh, of Abenomics um, Ideally, we would all like to see sort of the, the real rate of return go up, yeah? so the Vixelian neutral rate to go yeah. up through structural reforms, through innovation, sure. and then your job as a central banker becomes much easier, right? Of course, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for kind introduction. May I have uh, my slides on the uh, screen? Yes. yes. Okay. Thank you very much. As usual disclaimer for the central banks, uh, Opinions expressed here are those of authors and uh, shouldn't be not uh, shouldn't ascribe to the BOJ. In my presentation, uh, maybe I might summarize what I was talked about the previous sessions and then talked about the uh, uh, how to create the new innovations and what is the obstacle or problems of the uh, creation of the new innovation. Then, in the third part, uh, are we utilizing the new innovation or not uh, in the context of the uh, Japanese firms? Then finally, I will touch upon the, uh, some policy implications. This is the status fact of the uh, pack of the GDP. Uh, we would say it's a productivity growth of the advanced economy, including United States, Japan, and Germany, is actually kinked. So we see the uh, slowdown of the productivity growth in every advanced economies. So what theory says about the uh, per capita GDP growth is that uh, there are several uh, traditions of that. Martha's is the tradi very traditional one. Uh, the per capita GDP growth is limited by the productivity of land. So we are tied, to the, tied with the land productivity growth. The modern economic growth theory is started from the solar model. Uh, per capita economic growth is exogenously determined by technological progress. So somehow we got the technological progress, then we got the uh, improvement in the per capita GDP growth. The finally, we got the endogenous growth theory around the human capital and education with a market mechanism induced the per capita GDP growth, which is my more promising idea of the economic growth. Now look at the uh, status fact of the uh, growth accounting approach. This graph shows the uh, Japanese potential growth rate and uh, 
several contributions of the uh, factors affecting the potential GDP growth. The slowdown in TFP and the capital stock accumulations are the main, two main causes of Japan's long-term economic stagnation, as you can see in this graph. By looking at the different angle of the uh, stagnant of the uh, TFP growth or per capita GDP growth, uh, we run, calculate the TFP level of the uh, firm level calculation using the uh, Japanese data and the United States data. If you look at the uh, second chart, this is the distribution of the firm level TFP. Uh, there are several remarkable evidences here. The first one is that um, there are many frontier companies, not only United States, but also in Japan. Secondly, in Japan, many companies are skewed within the, uh, the middle level of the TFP. And uh, United States case, the distribution is more sparse and uh, diversified. And if you look at the first chart, this is the uh, chart of the distance from the frontier. How, you know, much, uh, how long, uh, how much different between the uh, top-notch companies to the average level of the U.S. firms and the Japanese firms? Average. Yeah, the first one is average. And uh, in United States case, the difference between the, from the uh, top-notch to the average is minimal. In Japanese case, there are huge differences between the frontier companies and the Japanese companies. So it's an average problem. We do see the, uh, some top-notch companies in Japan, but uh, on average, many companies lagged behind from the uh, frontier companies. So now the second topic is, are we creating a new innovation or not? There is a famous uh, theory of the innovation stag stagnation uh, claimed, uh, claimed by the uh, Professor Gordon. Gordon claims that the low productivity growth is caused by slowdown of the innovation. We do not have any significant innovation to rev revolutionize our lives these days, such as electricity, internal combustion engines, and so forth. However, I don't buy this pessimism. <laughs> we do have uh, modern innovations like uh, information communication technologies. We also uh, see the new uh, development of the uh, medical treatment and uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, innovations. The cancer is now become the curable disease. This chart shows the uh, uh, penetration uh, rate of the uh, information communication technology tools. Mobile phones, computers, internet are all over the world right now. There are some problems in the Japanese companies. That is open source innovation. Japanese firms stick to their own R&D developments and collaborate less with their uh, other organizations. If you look at the chart one, this is a characteristic of Japanese, uh, Japan's R&D. The share of the in-house development is large, about more than 70%. If you look at the uh, chart two, this is the R&D funding provider's share. From overseas to the firms, 
UK is the top country. Japan is the what, lowest country. Regarding the, uh, from the government to firms, Japan is also the lowest country. So in other advanced economies, they use the outside money to provide, to develop the uh, R&D activities. But finally, there are more interesting surveys here. If you look at the panel one, this is the perceived opportunity of the entrepreneurship. This means that how many people are there who believes there is an occasion to start a venture in next six months in their immediate environment? In the United States, the number is more than 50%. The UK is high, Germany is high, Belgium is also high, Japan is very low level. Please go to chart two. It's a perceived capabilities. Means that how many people are there who believe they have that required skills, knowledge, and experience to start a new ventures? As you can see, United States is the top country. The UK is followed and the German and the Belgian. Japan is the lowest. Third, the fear of the failure. Japan is the first country that uh, the huge amount of the people are fear of the failure. The lowest number is seen in the United States. The finally, respect for the successful entrepreneurship. In Japan, entrepreneurship are not respected, unfortunately, based on this survey. In United States, UK, Germany, the entrepreneurs are respected. So there are some perceptions about the entrepreneurship and animal space in Japan. Then, suppose we have a source of innovation. Can we utilize the innovation to increase the productivity growth or profitability of the companies? This is the, uh, the estimation of the uh, TFP growth uh, explained by the several factors such as IT information, communication technologies, intensity, around the intensity, and other factors. If you look at the difference between the estimated and actual, there's always differences in the past several years. This difference can be explained by the uh, actual residuals and the time dummy. So something is weighing down on the TFP growth in Japanese economy. This, this chart is also related to the, uh, uh, the discussion in the morning. You know, more R&D leads to the higher productivity growth for US firms, as you can see. If you look at this chart, the horizontal axis showing the share of the R&D to the GDP, and vertical axis shows the change of the TFP growth. So if you have a more R&D expenditure, you have much higher TFP growth, which is ideal situation. But in Japanese case, this number is almost flat. If you increase R&D, you can't get the higher TFP growth, which is very 
pessimistic picture of the uh, R&D investment. Exit and entry. This is also the, discuss, uh, the issues to be discussed in the morning session. Entry of innovation entrepreneurs and exit of unproductive firms promote macroeconomic growth, particularly too for the comparison between the United States case and the Japanese case. If you look at the first chart, this blue area is a contribution of the existing firms to the TFP growth of the United States. Uh, United States. In Japan, the share is pretty low level. And the chart two shows the listed year of large farms. In the United States, many large farms are new companies entered into the business in 2000 or after 2000. In Japan, most of the listed companies are established before the 1980s. So we have many old companies, which is pretty large, but we don't have new companies. And uh, this is also related to the issues, the aging companies. Firms, as well as the people, get older and less active, actually less productive. Chart one shows the, oops, sorry. Chart one shows the uh, uh, relationship between the years old and the change of TFP growth. If you're getting older, your productivity growth is getting lower. And the survival rate probability of lower TFP firms are also clear that in Japan, we hold the unproductive firms for many years. In the United States, we have a much less number of the less productive firms. So, you know, entry and exit is very active in the United States comparing in, in Japan. So key factor might be, I think, is the flexible labor market. The Traditional lifetime employment and the seniority wage system contribute to the lift in the productivity growth in Japan in the past. They worked well in the catch-up phase of the economic growth after World War II. But now we are facing uncharted territory. The traditional Japanese labor system is now um, impediment to new innovation. This is a fact of that. The chart one shows the length of the service and the wage relationship. If you work more in Japan, you get more, like this one. But in the Norway, if you work longer, you get constant, almost constant. So it's better for the Japanese workers to work for one company for a long time because you get the more. The second chart shows the uh, labor mobility. The uh, horizontal axis shows the, um, uh, the uh, flexibility of the labor market and the vertical axis shows the TFU growth. There is clearly the positive relationship. If you have a flexible labor market, you have a much higher TFU growth. Based on those facts, I would bring several policy implications. First one is education. High level education is a source of innovation, of course. We need to hire advanced technologies based on the uh, intensive studies in academia. But uh, due to the rapid change of business environment, maybe we need a mid-career training program to 
accommodate with the uh, new technological progresses. The third point is a very difficult one. We may need to install the animal spirits and provide them more grounds for the entrepreneurship in Japanese context. This is a hard one. Labor market policy. Easier firing, hiring is a key factors for reallocation of uh, human resources so as to adapt to a new innovation. The firing regular worker is almost impossible in Japan. The financial settlements of firing is a key step and the clear regulatory rules for that are uh, imperative. Income policy. Flex labor market may need a proactive income policy that allows fired workers to get the financial assistance and the retraining opportunities. The innovative society may increase inequality, winner takes all, and bipolar society kind of thing. Inequality may lead to social unrest and unstable society. So more proactive income policy may provide an innovative and stable society. There might be a completely opposite idea to this. The government expenditure. Government could provide more expenditure for R&D, and publicly funded innovation could be used for the private businesses, such as internet in the past in the United States context. Public assistance to unproductive companies, like a zombie companies, may ensure the job security of the workers, but may keep human and capital resource unproductive. And uh, trade immigration policy, increasing the trade barrier could hinder the fusion of the uh, technological progress and the optimal allocation of human and other resources. The social consensus on migration is a crucial one. Final two points uh, related to the, uh, our business of central banking. <laughs> As uh, Guntram pointed out, you know, you, low innovation and uh, growth uh, corresponds to a low natural rate. Monetary policy could be constrained by the effect of lower bound of uh, under low growth environments. So now, used to be unconventional policy, now become the, uh, could be a conventional. Hopefully, if, if we have a higher increasing the productivity growth, central bank business might be much easier, but not in foreseeable future. Finally, macroprudential policy. Low growth prospect discourage investment and uh, induce the saving growth. This could exert a downward pressure on profitability of financial sector and uh, induces uh, speculative activity. So uh, a more careful assessment of flow of funds is needed both domestically and internationally. That's all my presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think that was a great presentation. So let's um, have a few minutes to, to ask direct questions uh, to, uh, to Koji-san. Um, but at the end, we also will have a few 15 minutes also for general discussion. So, so please, who would like to, to raise a specific question on the presentation, please? Uh, you mentioned incomes policy as one of the uh, possible remedies. Uh, the IMF in its latest Article 4 has recommended that Japan go for um, more proactive income policy uh, to uh, uh, finally ignite the wage price spiral. Um, what is uh, your view, uh, not the BOJ's, your view <laughs> on this? And is this relevant in this context? 
We should perhaps we we collect, but I I think income. Well, uh, there's different forms of income policy, but I think this one perhaps is more like, um, if I understand correctly, it's more like a flex security, some some sort of a model. So read uh, right, right. A yeah. policy that. But anyway, so you uh, anyway, we will we will, let me collect a few more questions. Um, um, so okay, that's the after lunch effect, yeah. So so everybody. <laughs> <coughs> okay, I mean, I can, I can certainly add yes, a sir. question. Oh, sorry, please, yes. If you wanted a question and an after lunch question, I mean, just to emphasize, I, I'd like to hear more about the kind of incomes policy that reduces people's dwell time in unemployment. Exactly. I think because it was really interesting to see how long they stay in a job. But of course, the longer they stay unemployed, to a certain extent, the harder it is to get them employed. On the other hand, if the change they need to make is a big change, then simply getting them quickly back into employment misses the chance to, to employ them. So I'd love to hear some ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, can I ask one question on sure. this, this chart um, on page 14? So the decomposition of Japan's TFP. Um, so what is this constant? I mean, I understand the residual, mm. but what is the constant? I mean, why why is this in increasing? So so okay. why yeah. why is this counteracting? That you also had a question. Yes, uh, uh, yes. Oh, many uh, stylized facts you presented about Japanese firm, the fact that they are aging, are pointing to the role of competition policy. So do you think that Japan could have could do more in that uh, with that respect? Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe I will answer the easier question regarding this regression analysis. Actually, the uh, estimation uh, is based on the uh, year on year growth of the uh, TFE growth. For the presentation purpose, I draw the chart based on the accumulated base rather than the year on year base. So the constant should be accumulated uh, uh, as the year goes by. So the difference between the one year to another for in this chart is actually the estimated constant. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so if you, if I show the actual year on year base, it's, it's difficult to see the trend of that. That's why we, I use that. Uh, uh, accumulated base rather than the year-on-year uh, right. -year base. So that's an easier one. <laughs> uh, income policy. I understand the uh, IMF's uh, suggestion uh, of the uh, uh, income policy is in the context of the uh, changing the deflationary mindset of the Japanese uh, society. And uh, well, they claim that uh, Ask the private business to comply or explain uh, agenda might be a good catalyst to raise the nominal wage in a constant, uh, consistent base. However, I think there must be some difficulties because this is clearly the intervention policy and how much intervene the market would be depending on the policy discussion it's a political discussion. And I don't have any particular view on that because I'm the central bank. <laughs> <laughs> um, institutions, 
setting matters, actually. Uh, you know, due to the uh, wage negotiation system in Japan, uh, it's very difficult to change the, uh, 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 you know, wage setting behavior in the large companies. Uh, government try to, uh, you know, show that uh, it's important for the company to consistently raise the nominal wage in order to dispel the uh, deflationary mind descent in the Japanese society. That's for true. And uh, we will see the uh, continuous effort on that. The government raised the minimum wage for the last several years, which has a positive impact of nominal wage for part-time workers. That is also good for that, the, the, uh, uh, to dispel the deflationary mindset. We will see the result in coming years. Also, we, BOJ, do a huge effort to get out of the uh, deflation set. Um, regarding the uh, inc uh, related to the uh, unemployment situation and the income uh, policy and th uh, so forth, well, now in Japan, unemployment rate is 3%, which is the one of the lowest level in history. And the uh, re reason is that Many regular workers are employed by large companies and medium-sized companies with their lifetime employment system. Even during their deflation period, job security is, was kept. And uh, we see the nominal wage declining due to the uh, decline of bonuses. And uh, we, don't, we didn't see any huge spike in unemployment rate like a European countries or United States. So job security matters in the Japanese context. But because of the, such securities, we don't have a very minimum mobility of the labor markets. That is a problem, source of the problems right now. Because of that, it's very difficult for Japanese bank, uh, companies to reallocate human resources uh, as an economy. And uh, so uh, we need to change several <coughs> maybe regulations or labor customs, uh, maybe uh, customs within the companies. And uh, there must be uh, some change in coming years. Otherwise, we may trap into the low productivity growth for many years to come. Uh, finally, competition policy. Yeah, I think the competition policy matters because the uh, uh, increase in the competition provide a pressure on the companies to change something to, in order to increase the profitability and so forth. Uh, in Jap I guess it's depending on the goods and the services, how competitive the market is in Japan, and the same is true with the European countries. I only say very general remarks on that. The competition provides a very good opportunity for the company to change themselves. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. I mean, we will have time to discuss some of the issues further um, uh, at the end, hopefully. So let me now turn to uh, our second presentation by Remy Lecker. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, actually, I will. Uh, although I will present mostly uh, Banque de France studies, I um, do not express myself uh, in the name of the Banque de France. So right. I'm a central banker too. Hello. Okay. 
So, uh, my main message is first, uh, innovations matter, but the diffusion matters at least as much as innovation for growth. So, that's the first uh, preliminary re remark. Uh, and second, uh, we'll see that uh, innovation policy is necessary because you have externalities of R&D, so it's necessary to have uh, a government uh, policy with that respect. But the whole institutional environment is also a, a key uh, factor in innovation and diffusion of technology. And here, uh, we'll come back to uh, many points that was already addressed. Uh, competition policy, labor market flexibility, uh, high level of education and appropriate financing are, are key with that respect. So first, uh, you will see that innovation, how does uh, innovation, a new technology will contribute to growth. There are three channels. The first one is multi-factor productivity gains in the technology producing sectors. That is to say, uh, the productivity extracted from labor and capital in technology producing sector is uh, increasing fast because the price, quality adjusted prices of the technology is decreasing. We've seen that recently with computers, uh, which prices went down due uh, adjusted by quality. We have seen a major uh, decrease in uh, computer prices. Second point, is the contribution of technology also goes through the capital deepening in the new technology, that is to say investment in the new technology. Uh, a new technology will generate an acceleration of investment and contribute to growth that way. And finally, the, the last channel is more disputed, is the fact that you have, may have uh, multi-factor productivity gains also due to the use of new technology, not in the technology sector, but in other sectors. For example, the retail sector, when using uh, computer to uh, have a better uh, management of its inventories. So, here you have the example of a decomposition of labor productivity in the United States by uh, Brian Olinar and Seichel. So, for different periods, uh, up to 1995, up to 2004, and uh, from uh, 2004 to 2012. So, what do we see? So we have, in brown, uh, we have capital deepening. In dark brown, it's capital deepening in information technology. And in pink, in other capital deepening. Then in green, you have the, the contribution of labor composition. The fact that you have um, more skilled labor. And finally, you have a multi-factor productivity in dark blue in the information technology producing sectors and light blue in the other sectors. So what do we see from this? Well, first, for all periods, what we see is that capital deepening in information technology contributes as much to labor productivity in the US as multi-factor productivity in the IT producing sector. That is to say, uh, the, the diffusion of technology through investment would contribute as much to growth as the, the innovation itself and the fact that you are producing the new technologies. So you see it's true also uh, in, uh, at the peak of the IT uh, boom, technology shocks, so in 1995 to 2004, and with possibly a contribution of this diffusion also in other sectors. As you can see, you have an 0.9 uh, contribution to uh, labor productivity of multi-factor productivity in other sectors. 
And here, it's also true uh, in the most uh, recent period up to 2012. So now, regarding diffusion, if you, you have the, the ratio of uh, uh, information and communication technology to GDP. You have it for the US in uh, dark, uh, in dark line, the dark line. In the, the dotted line is a euro area, and then you have uh, with cross the UK and Japan with the circles. So what you see is that the US took a lead in terms of diffusion of ICT as soon as the 80s and still kept and kept this lead till the end. The UK somewhat catch up with the US. Uh, Japan is an average position and Euro area is lagging. So on one sense, you see that this diffusion was not as effective in the Euro area as in the US or the UK or Japan. And uh, maybe an optimistic note, it means that we have margin for catching up. Even if innovation is stalled in Europe, we still can uh, grow just through the convergence of uh, the uh, ICT capital stock. So now let me turn to the uh, policy recommendation. First, innovation policy. So you have externalities from R&D, that is to say the social benefits from R&D are superior to their private benefits. So it vindicates the action of the government, either through direct financing for fundamental research or subsidies to the private sector. And I would like to take a French example, so the tax credit for research that was uh, actually implemented uh, as soon as the 80s, but was stepped up in 2008. And it's based actually on the volume of R&D expenditure. That is to say that this tax credit amounts to 30% of expenses up to 100 million euro and 5% above. So you have a, a kind of bias for uh, small, uh, for SMEs for uh, small, exp small expenses. And uh, it's a very large policy. It's uh, 5.6 billion in 2013, meaning uh, around 0.5% uh, uh, of GDP. So it's a very significant policy. And uh, the Banque de France evaluation uh, through uh, different, uh, at, the, at the firm level actually, uh, found a multiplier effect between 0.9 actually at the extensive margin and 1.4 at the intensive margin of R&D expenditure of this policy. Meaning that when you put one euro of tax credit, you get one euro of R&D uh, in, in the private sector. So international evidence also usually finds this kind of unit multiplier of these uh, policies. So these policies are quite effective within the range of uh, usual policies. Uh, let me talk very briefly of uh, patent policy and uh, intellectual property. So, of course, you, you need to have a balance between having returns to innovation and incentives on innovation and the fact that innovation has to be uh, spread. Uh, but my point would rather be that uh, there is uncertainty due to the existence of multiple protection regime at the international level. And uh, with that respect, the European Unitary Patent in 2013 was a, a progress. So now, maybe just uh, the, the impact of this uh, tax credit in France. So you have on the left hand side corporate, corporate retreacher per thousand employees. 
So you see that it is a, France is a green line and we see a very fast increase with French catching up with the US, but still much below uh, Japan. And you have the average cost of researchers after the benefit of this incentive. And we see that it, uh, France now is uh, about the level of Japan with that respect and uh, below the UK or the US. So it has been a, a very, uh, of a very large policy in terms of amounts dedicated to the policy, but uh, with significant results. So we've seen that there is a role for uh, innovation policy by itself, but the whole institutional context is at least as important. And here you have a Banque de France studies that uh, tried to uh, see what are the factors behind the diffusion gap of ICT vis-à-vis uh, -vis the United States. So what you see is in dark, you have the user cost of ICT capital, which doesn't make a very large difference with that respect. You have the impact of education. It's here it's uh, higher education, the share of higher education within the working age population. And finally, you have the impact in gray of rigidities, that is to say labor market rigidities or product market rigidities. So they are taken together because they are interrelated and we see that uh, the, the, the diffusion of ICT will be stimulated. Both, you need both a competition policy that will make firms move and you require also that the, 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 the firms can move because uh, of flexible labor market, because they can uh, actually, you can create a new firms, yes, there is no barrier to entry, and you can hire uh, skilled workers that are not retained by incumbent firms. It's 2005 data? Yes, it's 2005 data because it's uh, the peak of uh, actually the, the ICT uh, contribution to productivity growth here. Um, so what you, what you see here is that you have a very large contribution from uh, education and a very significant uh, contribution of rigidities to, to the ICT diffusion gap vis-à-vis -vis the United States. <coughs> Next, another Bank de France study. So you know the inverted U-curve of Philippe Aguillon uh, relating competition, so on the X-axis, to innovation on the Y-axis. So, uh, according to Philippe Aguillon, uh, competition up to a certain point will stimulate innovation because people will try to escape competition by innovating. But after a certain point, laggards will not be uh, encouraged to innovate uh, because uh, the, the benefit from innovation will be uh, less important because average profit will go down due to competition. So you have this inverted U curve that was uh, settled by uh, Philippe Aguillon. And then what uh, this Banque de France studies, uh, this Banque de France studies uh, looked at was the, the importance of the relative cost of innovation. And seeing that uh, both for small and medium enterprise or for sectors in which the cost of innovation is very large, then you need a very strong boost in competition to have firms change. And so, in fact, uh, Philippe Aguillon looked at listed companies, so very large companies, but when you <coughs> extend the sample to all companies, including SMEs, uh, you see actually that the, this inverted U-curve is quite flat, and for SMEs, it's even uh, more uh, flat and not inverted U, meaning that competition policy always have a positive impact 
on uh, firms innovation. So, and my final point is uh, a point about uh, financing. So it was a Banque de France study conducted with uh, Philippe Aguillon. And here you have uh, the growth of sales on the x-axis. Uh, it's a firm level analysis. And you have R&D uh, growth on the y-axis. So, and you have a measure of credit constraint that is based on uh, so French uh, firms. Uh, due to a payment incident. So when a firm has a payment incident, it is uh, actually on a register, and then it will impede its ability to access to financing. So what you see is that uh, firms, uh, so in dark, in the dark line is the firms that have low credit constraints. And you see that their, their uh, R&D growth is quite uh, flat compared to sales growth, meaning that it's not procyclical. It would be countercyclical at the, at the macroeconomic level. On the contrary, you, look, you see that, firms, that we, with, firms with high credit constraints, the R&D spending will be uh, extremely procyclical. That is to say, when you have a very fast growth of sales, you will have a very fast growth of R&D spending. So this is to illustrate the sensitivity of R&D to the condition of financing. And we mentioned recently that uh, there is a need for an appropriate financing of, of R&D, uh, taking into account its long-term aspect, that you need long-term financing. It's a risky also, uh, it's risky projects. So you need also uh, an appropriate uh, sharing of, of the risk with regards to, uh, to R&D. So that's my main point. So you need to have uh, both an uh, innovation policy targeted to, to innovation, but also an appropriate environment, both a flexible labor market, uh, appropriate competition policy, uh, high level of uh, education, and uh, appropriate financing. Thank you. Great, thank you. That was also a very interesting uh, presentation, I have to say. So let me open again the floor for um, a few questions, remarks. I mean, I think a few of the themes already resonated in other panels today. So, so one is on the, on the financing. I think, Scott, you mentioned that also quite prominently in your presentation. I mean, the, the fact that uh, financial constraints are actually a problem for, for R&D um, if they are there. And I think, Georgios, you've also done some... Perhaps you want to you want to add a little bit on that that point, or uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I have a question firstly about this flatter curve. Um, could you uh, explain the underlying incentives of firms uh, that uh, why they are not so strong, especially the superterian view on this model, and because um, financial constraints affect the ability uh, of firms to innovate, so we could expect also that. Uh, product market competition um, affecting the funds for innovation will also have a negative impact. So we could also expect uh, uh, probably a more uh, prominent negative part, you know. Yeah. Or we can collect still a few more remarks, please. Thank you very much for two very interesting presentations. They very much looked on the different elements of the supply side, where a lot of interesting comments have been made. My questions relates a bit to the overall policy, which has a 
demand side and then the supply side element. Uh, because the macroeconomic policy mixed to a certain extent also then affects some elements which are related to the structural changes. And you gave one example. For, uh, if you want to give tax benefits for uh, research expenditure, this affects obviously also your potential budget deficit. So my question is a bit uh, concerning the difference in the macroeconomic policy answer between Japan, the United States, and the Euro area. Can you make some comments to what extent a more proactive European macroeconomic policy, allowing the fiscal policy maybe to react more openly in supporting changes, might have affected the chances of advancing some of the recommendations on the supply side? So my question is a bit, to link the macroeconomic policy differences which you can see between Europe and other partners to the discussions about the more supply-side instruments and the recommendations. My question is more on the uh, competition innovation uh, graphic and uh, the fact that digitalization uh, probably changed the nature of uh, innovation. For instance, in life science and biology, you don't speak any more disruptive innovation, but more transformative innovation. And digitalization also uh, may not have the same effect on this relation between competition and uh, innovation. So I wonder if you have an insight about how the types of innovation might affect this kind of uh, reasoning. And, uh, Traditional cost uh, theories do not apply, for instance, with the development costs, so uh, that may also challenge these kind of tools. Any other question, please? Uh, this is more a comment than a question, maybe that's a relief. <laughs> um, in the context of the preparation of the previous survey, uh, we visited Cyberdyne, which is a company that makes exoskeletons uh, in Japan. Uh, that is. Uh, uh, contraptions that allow people who are paralyzed or suffering from uh, neuromuscular disease to recover uh, mobility. And one of the problems is in a very innovative firm faced is to get the uh, social insurance system to accept uh, 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 reimbursing patients who are equipped with, with this kind of robotic uh, apparatus. And in the end, uh, uh, Cyberdyne had to go to Germany and uh, to partner with a German firm in order to get uh, uh, funding from uh, reimbursement from the social insurance system in Germany for, for the medical device and only then uh, was there change uh, in Japan. So that's another aspect among the conditioning factors that uh, influence diffusion of innovation that uh, perhaps uh, can be highlighted uh, in, in Japan. I wanted to add one question on this graph yes. because I, I like that. Uh, I think that's a very interesting, uh, interesting graph and of course the big thing is education and rigidities, and you know, I was just wondering, what can you say on the on the uh, education part, really? I mean, Japan seems to be actually quite quite good here. I mean, there's okay, there's a little bit of, but it's not so huge the the, the education block. But of course, in Italy, but also France, I mean, and on Austria, it's it's quite huge the blue, blue the blue bar. So so what is it? Um, is it uh, the primary education? Is it the professional education? Is it the entire system? What needs to change there? If you can have a little bit more sense what, what we need to do there. 
So, um, maybe first um, on this graph and the, the two related questions, actually the, the point of this uh, paper is to say that when you have a very costly innovation, either costly by themselves or uh, costly relative to the size of the firms, then you need to have a, a much bigger shock in terms of competition to have, uh, to have the, the firm invest and change their innovation policy. So uh, it means that uh, the in innovation is less sensitive uh, to competition and uh, also that the curve is flat and competition has a, a positive effect much longer within the distribution. And for SMEs, uh, competition always have a positive impact. If you increase competition, it always have a positive impact on innovation. Then in the change in the nature of uh, innovation, um, I don't have uh, an answer. Uh, the, the, so the, the point is that uh, here is the, the cost of innovation relative to the size of the firms. So that's the uh, main point. But, but sorry, can I ask on this one? Because yes. uh, I think what, what Georgis had in mind is uh, also that if you have more competition, especially among the smaller companies, perhaps they get more financially constrained because mm. uh, you know they, they, the cash flow coming in, I mean, the profits are less. And so there's perhaps therefore le more financial constraints and less ability to innovate. Because you showed also that... So, uh, that's a point that is included in the, the model, actually. The Schumpeter, so the Schumpeter view, is the fact that uh, you have more uh, higher margin and then you can finance uh, more R&D. That's... Uh, okay. But does it take into account how the financing takes place? I mean, it's purely incentives, or there is also a banking... Uh, no, no, there is no banking. There is uh, no banking. Okay. But you have the margins. So. Yeah. Mm. Um, next, uh, maybe on the, the articulation with macroeconomic policy. So, uh, if you want to have a fiscal incentive, you need to have a fiscal space. Uh, you need to be able to, to not to be indebted too much and to have uh, uh, actually a, a pass of your, uh, of your public debt that is sustainable. And in that respect, there is a close uh, relation between uh, structural reform, structural policies, and uh, macroeconomics. Because if you implement structural reforms, you increase your potential growth, and your uh, public debt pass may be more sustainable. So there is an interrelation also in the other direction, because if, you ha if some uh, structural reforms may have short-term negative impacts, and uh, from a political uh, point of view, but also uh, uh, from also the, it's their efficiency, it's, uh, it may be uh, good to have a public deficit, when to, to, to have public spending, for example, to uh, buy back uh, taxi licenses, all that sort of, uh, of things. So uh, the two are cl indeed closely interrelated. Um, and my, my question maybe was not clear enough. Uh, my question was, if you compare the different macroeconomic policy reform answer after the financial crisis between the euro area and other parts of the world, do you see there specific elements which might uh, affect the possibility of Europe to go for these structural changes? Uh, actually, one point, uh, the, the macroeconomic response, it was a financial crisis. So as you see, the credit constraints are very important for R&D and innovation. So if uh, the macroeconomic response uh, allowed to alleviate these uh, credit constraints, 
the, the most effective these policies uh, were, uh, the, the less uh, the, the impact of the financial crisis was. Perhaps I can add one, uh, one element I mean, uh, on, on this question. I mean, if you look at composition of public consol fiscal consolidation in different euro area countries, in 2009, uh, we all made a big promise, which was celebrated by the Commission and by the European Council. Fiscal consolidation will not be done at the expense of research and development. It will not be done at the expense of education. It will not be done at the expense of the future. So we will cut the non-productive spending at some stage. And of course, the opposite happened. I mean, the, the expenditure cuts were mostly done in research, in investment, in education, in youth, um, and so on, and not on the on the um, uh, not so much on the less productive forms like pensions and so on. And I think it's really this composition that perhaps I, I would, in this context, stress very much. I mean, but sorry. And finally, with regard to this graph. Uh, actually, the education bar is the proportion of higher education in uh, the working age population. So here it's targeting to the higher level, higher education. Higher education. So uh, it's the stock within the population, meaning that in 2005, the fact that you have a, a very strong increase uh, of uh, university degrees in Europe uh, was not uh, still uh, fully taken into account. And uh, actually now, the, maybe it has been uh, someone upset. It's uh, progressively ups upset uh, through time. Okay. If, oh, a comment, okay. Which is that under periods when transition into the job market is under stress, education goes up as an alternative to employment. And if you look instead at the proportion of people with higher education degrees who are in occupations that require or use those degrees, you see that story told quite comprehensively. So to a certain extent, a big education chunk of this is actually a symptom of failure rather than success. Well, actually, uh, the point was that uh, uh, massification of university de degrees started as soon as the 1970s. So it's a very long-term uh, development. Um, but I can say from my university... Okay, um, so we already started the, a bit more general discussion, but anyway, so last but not least, really, uh, Benyat, please, I mean, you have... Um, Thank you very much and good afternoon, everyone. I think that one of the main challenges that coming last has is that quite a lot has been said, especially not just because it has been said during this uh, session on policies, but also because on the analytical part during the day, much has been said. So I've been trying to sketch out where I could focus a little bit to add a little bit of uh, value to, to this uh, panel at the end, and I think that I'm going to mainly focus on two areas that I would like to highlight. So first of all, um, you know, my colleagues in the panel, uh, you know, coming from central banks, they have made a strong emphasis on the importance of the framework conditions, the role of structural reforms in the economy, the need for efficient um, markets to reallocate production factors, etc. And for us, this is also one of the core areas to support innovation more broadly. But um, we also see a strong emphasis in terms of 
are reforms that have to be done on the research and innovation system per se. So because when we are talking about innovation, it's not only about you know how this how much different countries are investing, and we saw in the previous presentation like how the returns uh, for Japan were lower, for example, than in the US. And this is mainly due to contextual factors, both on where this research is taking place in the economies, that is very much linked to this uh, strand of work in terms of structural reforms, but we also believe that there is an emphasis on how this research and innovation policy is being performed and the need, in many cases, for reforming these systems per se. So this will be one of the first areas of focus of my presentation. And the second one coming from the European Commission will be to focus a little bit on the hopefully added value that research and innovation policy has at the European level and what are the type of uh, actions and activities uh, that we are promoting. So if we go into these two objectives, first of all, let me just say very briefly in terms of an introduction that you know I think that it's very clear that Japan and Europe is facing the same problem in terms of productivity. I think that this is, you know, widely acknowledged. And we also acknowledge that, you know, to a large extent, this is related to the ability of those economies uh, to actually not so much invest, but actually obtain the results that we want from uh, these research and innovations investments. Um, some share features of well-performing research and innovation systems that are having relatively good results in terms of productivity uh, growth are, in terms of the research and innovation area, are the need for a strong science-based, to have a strong private investment in intangible assets, uh, in R&D notably, but also in other assets as we have been as seen here, like in skills development, ICT, because all of them are uh, creating this uh, ecosystem that would allow for a better performance of all the different investments, uh, better framework conditions or uh, business conditions, and of course for strong linkages between um, the science base and the industry. When we look at Europe, at the different member states, what we see is that the situation is very diverse. Uh, and in fact, what we see also is that many countries need to act on different elements to improve their uh, R&D ecosystem somehow. Some of them are underinvesting in R&D, um, and therefore you know, the policy recommendation that we may have for them is that they need to invest more in R&D. However, in many other cases, uh, it's not that they are uh, investing poorly in R&D, but it's mainly you know, the efficiency of how they are investing in R&D. And this is linking to this first objective that I was mentioning in terms of you know, the reform of the research systems. What we see in Europe many times is that you know, how this research, and this research funding, for example, from, from the public sector is allocated, is following sometimes you know, um, not the most efficient manner to be invested. This is due to rigidities that exist in the system, due to legacy issues on how the research funding has been allocated, whether it has been you know, uh, allocated fully uh, based on grants, uh, blocking to institutions without much uh, control over the performance that these institutions have been doing, that there has not been you know, an evidence-based uh, analysis on which be the exact share between you know, block funding to uh, 
to promote the research capacity of different institutes and to allow for long-term research projects in these institutions pair with, at the same time, you know, part of the funding that is allocated based on performance-based indicators. And all this is creating some uh, rigidities in the ability of these research systems to actually uh, perform strongly in terms of creating the skills and knowledge base that is needed to have a robust um, innovation ecosystem. Sometimes we also see in some member states um, areas that are related to weak private investment in research and innovation and in other intangible assets. This is also, to a large extent, based on the economic structure of these countries and the need to start fostering this um, structural change within their economies. But sometimes it's also due to the fact that uh, research that is being available or the knowledge that is being available in these countries is actually either not relevant or not sufficiently relevant for the business community to actually absorb uh, the public uh, knowledge that is available there and therefore that acts a little bit as a handicap or as a filter to get higher levels of private R&D investment. And then we also have uh, sometimes uh, problems and we see in some, in some countries problems that are related with the creation of linkages between the business and the science community. Again, many times these are related to the low uh, absorp absorption capacity from the private sector because they don't have the skills or the capacity, but many times it's also related to how um, research institutes or universities are actually organized and how they are creating or not the right incentives for them to, in to create these closer linkages with the private sector. And we also see that this is uh, something that it's an important area for the research systems to consider themselves in terms of whether they are performing well or not. And finally, it's about the framework conditions for research and innovation. So there are the framework conditions that are important for the well-functioning of an economy, per se. And we have been hearing uh, here, you know, the level of uh, competition, uh, low rigidities in production markets, labor markets, etc. So that allows for this reallocation of resources. But there are also some framework conditions that are important for the innovation system and that have already been touched upon uh, during the previous presentations. So uh, framework conditions that allow to reduce the risk that companies are facing when they're investing in this type of investments. So access to available finance at a relatively affordable cost. Uh, and then also the ability for companies to absorb as much as possible the results or returns from their investment from this um, from the investment in these intangibles, including R and D, and this is related to the uh, protection of uh, intellectual property. So we need to strike the right balance in this area. So. That's a little bit in terms of an overview of which are the type of policies that we think that are important uh, uh, to take into consideration at the national level. But at the same time, we are also uh, thinking that there are a set of policies in Europe uh, that Europe or the European Union as such can undertake to improve uh, the innovation potential uh, in the continent. First of all, if, if I start from the last element that I was mentioning for the member states in terms of improving the framework conditions, I think that at the European level there is high potential to improve these framework conditions by implementing some of the uh, main uh, policies that we have set for ourselves. So 
starting from the achievement of the internal market that is still uh, not fully completed, especially for services, and this is creating also handicaps. There are elements to improve also uh, the framework conditions, as um, my predecessor mentioned, in terms of the IPR protection with the European patent. Uh, there is also elements on the research systems themselves in Europe with the creation of the European research area. So a better uh, functioning of the European research area for the free movement of knowledge. And there is also potential to improve the framework conditions by developing the capital union uh, in order to improve uh, the, financial, the, the financial conditions uh, that firms face when undertaking this type of investments. Finally, uh, in addition to this type of in addition to this type of uh, policies, we also see that there are a set of policy instruments that can play an important role in fostering innovation in Europe overall. So first of all, you know, related to the investment plan, so the Juncker investment plan, where you know, additional funding will be available for um, high-risk, long-term type of investments, including R&D projects, especially for SMEs, those uh, enterprises that probably are facing more constraints in terms of um, obstacles to be able to engage in R&D investments. We also see uh, the role for um, the framework program and the new framework program in terms of uh, boosting the, uh, capacity, the knowledge flows and networks in Europe, also the structural funds in terms of boosting the capacities, especially in those regions that may lack sufficient uh, skills or ability to engage and appropriate the, the results of uh, these activities. And also uh, a recent initiative that is under analysis that is, is the European in, um, Investment Council to see how we can actually support um, investments that are coming from the bottom in order to accelerate the adoption of this uh, diffusion of technology that has been mentioned before, that is one of the main bottlenecks, how we can get things into the market faster. So in a nutshell, I think that these are a few of the elements, both in terms of you know, reforms that have to be done at the national level in terms of the research and innovation system, in addition to all the different reforms that uh, we have been that have been presented before and also at the European level in terms of policy, uh, policies that can uh, accelerate and improve the conditions for creating a better climate for investment and better appropriation of the results and also in terms of supporting the, the investment levels. So, yeah, with this I conclude. Thank you. Great, thank you. That was also very interesting and very complimentary also to the, uh, to the other presentations. And let me also uh, give a chance for you to take one or two uh, questions from the audience. But also, I think we can also start already the general uh, discussion. But, but perhaps a specific question for, for you. I mean, I sort of take all the points you made on the European policy, so single market for services, European patent, capital markets union, uh, Juncker investment plan, uh, structural funds and so on. I, I guess it would be nice for, to hear a little bit also from your perspective um, uh, the DG research, um, so DG RTD uh, policy on uh, on research funding. So the Horizon 2020. <clears throat> I mean, which gaps are you are you filling, and uh, sort of what? How do you see that fitting into into the overall European research picture? Perhaps you can 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 say a few words about. DGRTD, uh, RTD's policies, 
Um, and is there any other specific question to uh, uh, Benyat? Uh, please, yes. Um, <coughs> there, there were two things I wanted to ask you to comment specifically on. One is that when these, we've, we've heard a lot about competition policy, and it's sort of been uh, almost an elephant in the room here. Because obviously, this kind of intervention, particularly public financing for private R&I, does have the potential to distort markets. Now, I was wondering if you might be able to comment on whether you see any problems or issues in terms of the correlation between power in the marketplace for ideal ideas and power in labor markets for specific skills or for the sales of particular goods. So that's one thing. The other thing has to do with the fact that investments in R&I and risk capital participation in particular are, above all, risky investments. And whether you see a way to force the beneficiaries of public investment to think in terms of paying back that it is an investment and not to slip in, particularly if they're in a privileged SME status, to slip into thinking of it as a grant modality, which makes them either excessively risk averse or slow to pay back, or creates just another version of the same old problem that risk capital participation was supposed to get rid of. Yes, very good questions, and I think that both touch upon one, you know, which is European added value for the Horizon 2020, and where we are actually complementing, you know, what uh, research, what national research councils, for example, are funding, and why we are engaging in this type of activities. And second, I think that, you know, it's the very difficult questions of trying to strike the balance, or where you actually set, where you think that the market failure is, and whether you are appropriately touching and addressing it, or whether you are addressing it and create a new problem. And I think that for that, I may not have a very <laughs> easy answer, to be honest. Uh, but I start uh, with the first one. So in terms of Horizon 2020 and the upcoming um, FP9, I think that, well, that's how internally we call it. Uh, we don't have... Uh, <laughs> maybe Horizon 2027, maybe. <laughs> but, no, 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 it's fine. But I think, you know, I think that the added value from uh, the European research funding comes from engaging or funding research that tries to address three main issues. So the first one is one, you know, um, the level of investments that are required are so high that even at the national level, the risk are so high that it may not be undertaken. So in these uh, cases, I think that the role of Horizon 2020 and any other research uh, funding at the European level has uh, a role to play. I think the second one is also, you know, related to these knowledge flows within Europe, but also open to the world that for us is also very important. Uh, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of um, research that goes beyond national boundaries and therefore this may not um, trigger the interest of the National Research Council and therefore we have to go into a different level. And then I think that, uh, and it's very much related to this. I think it's when there are massive spillover effects that also are going to be beyond these national boundaries. I think that there is a role for uh, the European research program to, to fund this type of activities. Um, and so this is a little bit on the first question. Uh, also, you know, creating these networks, which is related to, um, to the 
free flow of knowledge and, and skills available. So therefore, uh, there is a role for Horizon 2020 to take place and to address these um, market failures that otherwise would not be dealt with at the national level. <coughs> In terms of the level of competition and financing of R&D projects, yes, I think that you know there is a very thin line between you know engaging with an active uh, policy that is trying to address this market failure in the sense that there might not be sufficient investment to have uh, these productive uh, results and you know what are the type of um, market structures that you are going to create because of this intervention. I think that for that there are two issues. I think that first of all um, there should be this social return that should be higher. Uh, when you are engaging in this type of investments. If there are not the social returns, I think that then it's a role for uh, regulation uh, to see you know, how this can be addressed in a, in a more effective way. But I recognize and I think that you know, um, the difficulties of setting this thin line ex ante is quite difficult. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, this is the logic behind the programs and you know, the valuations that are undertaken by those institutions that are engaging in providing this funding, be the Commission, be the European Investment Bank, is very much thinking on, on, the, on that direction. Um, yeah, and I think that, that that addresses the question. Okay, um, so we have a few uh, more minutes to, for any last comments, remarks, questions. Um, please, I mean, whoever would like to, to add to the debate um, at this stage. I mean, I know after a long day, people are typically tired, but perhaps we still have, yes, please. Yes, I wanted to come back to the financing mechanism, because you seem to say we need long-term financing if we want to stimulate uh, entrepreneurship uh, <coughs> in the long run and make it as a contribution. The behavior of the VC funds is uh, to get a calculation of the return on investment. So they're going to see if uh, they put money on an entrepreneur and his project, they're going to get a return in three years or five years or seven years. But is there any mechanism to impede them also to say, okay, this is too long, there's delays, so they get out of this one and pick another one and behave like a conglomerate putting money in places where they have enough return very quickly. So my question is, can the Bank of France or the, the financial uh, intermediaries uh, accompany and make sure that it's a sustainable fund? Because the VC will not behave like this. And there's so many uh, reasons why it slowed down, especially with knowledge transfer. Make it, instead of going with the pace of uh, innovation, you delay the innovative process for so long that VC drop at the end. Uh, may I? Actually, I'm, I'll raise that question. Actually, I'm also interested in uh, who could be the player, or who could be the spender, or who could be the investor for the ICT capital. ICT capital is very relevant. And as the lady had a difference, previous question referred to the digitalization. And I, I believe the digitalization changed the dimension of the innovation quite dramatically recently. Then actually anticipating the autonomous driving, Japanese, Japanese big companies are supposed to be the big spender for the innovation, 
but Japanese automakers are getting consolidated to, make, to be affordable to make a future investment. My question is, as you pretty much highlighted Horizon 2020 or Yunka Plan, who could be the, you know, spend, who could be the investor for the ICT capitals at this age of digitalization? I have a fairly broad question, but maybe this is good for the end. And this is my, my question is a bit linked to the place which innovation policy has in the overall uh, economic or even industrial policy. Because I think we have heard today that innovation policy is touched by all the different aspects of our economy and society. So my question to you, to the panel, is a bit if you compare the industrial policy of the different big actors, how would you judge the role of industrial policy linked to innovation policy? If I take the Chinese example, where you can look into a five-year plan, where you can see that in an overall industrial and economic policy, innovation has its place, and this innovation policy is very much linked to all the different aspects of the economic and even political system. So my question is a bit if you compare the different economic and policy answers to innovation of the big partners, that means Europe, Japan, and China, how would you position these policies? And how much industrial policy is needed to also make success with innovation policy? That's a very uh, good and very <laughs> tough question to, so, so to answer in one minute. But uh, oh, uh, Scott, yeah, and then... Well, a, a fairly narrow one to, to follow that very broad one, mainly for uh, Benyat. Um, the uh, Horizon 2020 also included an SME instrument. Uh, there, there, there was a monitoring uh, document that came out. It, it's clear that there, you know, there are applications, there's money being uh, committed. Uh, is there any sense yet on how effective it is in terms of generating results, however you would define results? That's an interesting one. Okay, so, so let me uh, turn back to, to my panelists, and I think there were questions were not directly directed to anybody, but perhaps uh, you start, and so you get to, to pick the first. Right, uh, there are many questions and comments. First, let me a little bit to touch upon the uh, financing issues, which I haven't talked about too, uh, too much about my, in my presentation. Providing the very risky money is a dangerous business, and uh, we need a capital rather than the bank financing, based on the assessment of the uh, nature of the uh, innovative technologies and so forth. We have a very similar situation in Japan and Europe, where the main financial intermediation is through the banking sector rather than the capital market. We have discussed this issue for many years in Japan. Uh, we would like to have a more angels, uh, capital providers in Japan. Uh, the uh, government actually encouraged the uh, more capital financing for SMEs and so forth. But still, we have pretty limited uh, access for the SMEs to the uh, uh, risky financings. Well, the one way to see the successful uh, example was in the past in Japan was that uh, large companies may have a chance to provide their fund provider to the SMEs. 
and to you know uh, provide a more chance for SMEs to develop in the R&D and so forth. Because now, profitability of the large farms in Japan is very, very high. And they don't see any chance to invest domestically. Why not invest in the SMEs? Which might be a risky, but which might be a potential to grow. Uh, that might be a good ecosystem of the money of that. Actually, now the Japanese companies engage in the uh, merger and acquisition activities in abroad in order to get the new technological skills and the new market access in, uh, outside of Japan. This is kind of the uh, different uh, uh, function of to get the uh, new access to the new technologies. So uh, I guess, but uh, they see the uh, pretty limited uh, opportunity within Japan. So uh, we need to change the uh, structural problems in Japan in order for the companies to get uh, to use the more uh, flexible uh, change of the portfolio of the technology and innovation. That might be a key factor of that. Maybe I can pass on the other. Um, yeah, maybe a, a little bit. Oh, yeah. Just some reactions, I think, that to the question on venture capital and regulation. I personally think that you know venture capital should not be regulated in that sense that you could you have to force them you know to stay with a certain number of years for a certain investment. I think that what we need to analyze is whether you know the venture capital market as it exists at the moment creates this market failure for these longer term horizons and whether there is need for a public intervention. Uh, in that respect, that complements and not crowds out the existing venture capital market. Um, in terms of ICT capital investment, was that the question? Um, you know, I think that there are different approaches to who is going to invest into this heavy infrastructure. So this could be, uh, it depends, you know, whether it's going to be the public sector per se or whether the public sector can engage into a public-private uh, collaboration in order to uh, accelerate and co-finance uh, the development of this infrastructure and also you know which would be the benefits for or how you would be regulating then the access to this type of infrastructure I think that different mechanisms uh, need to be analyzed so I think that it's very hard to say you know a straight answer that it's the public or it's the private I think that you need to, to get into the details of which are the specific conditions the you know, function of the multinationals. I mean, the multinational try to make the you know influence as we discuss of the over open the innovation or something. It's also relevant with ICD capital. So, yeah, it's not my direct policy. So, <laughs> ask uh, DigiConnect. <laughs> uh, for Cosme and the results of Cosme and the impacts, the quick answer is that I don't know. But I can find out and let you know. But I'm sure that it's been evaluated because all the programs uh, at the Commission are being evaluated. So which are the criteria and the counterfactual that they are using? It's something that I don't have the details uh, with me, but I, I can find out. And the final comment that I had a little bit on this innovation policy, industry policy. Uh, <laughs> it's a big one. And uh, officially, I think that I should not say anything about this. Uh, I think that. As a general comment, I think that 
I would say again that this depends on the specific context where you are. There are many successful countries where industrial policy is not active and pretty much the industrial policy has been related to innovation policy and it's the innovation policy that is driving this industrial policy. Whether that can have long-term negative effects and the need to go into a deeper type of uh, industrial policy is also something that needs to be analysed. But for the time being, I think that it, it's it's very hard to to say, you know, which is the role. But certainly innovation policy is a core component of any industrial policy. Maybe uh, one very general co comment regarding uh, industrial policy. So you have the usual problem of uh, picking up the, the right sector, which uh, will innovate, of not providing rents uh, to, uh, to, to the firms that benefit from uh, industrial uh, policy. So we see that it's uh, difficult to target uh, properly uh, industrial policy. And maybe one important point and one important complement to industrial policy is to have uh, a proper level of, of competition in, in the sectors that benefit from industrial policy and maybe not to, ha to target uh, really uh, uh, specific actors, but maintain uh, an appropriate degree of, uh, of competition while uh, uh, having an industrial policies. Okay, I mean, perhaps one last point on the industrial policy. I mean, uh, since you mentioned also China, I think, of course, one key question is, um, and I don't, I don't think we have fully answered that question, is if we have different systems where in some systems we have a lot of emphasis on competition policies and others we actually allow you know, an active uh, state-run industrial policy with, uh, with subsidies uh, to companies, we actually get a distorted uh, competition. Um, and uh, the more we break down the barriers of trade, and uh, investment, bilateral investment, the more this becomes a core, a core issue. And I think on the European side, we really need to reflect quite a bit um, on uh, what kind of bilateral investment treaty, bilateral trade agreements and so on we can have uh, with, with, with China um, if the systems are so different. So I think it's really a question of how do you adapt to different kinds of systems. But I think it's a, it's a, we could have a full-day conference on that question, and I, I think it's really a big and important question, but um, it requires much more work and much more research. So I think uh, at this stage, um, let me um, thank all of you for coming here. Let me uh, thank also um, uh, the supporters, financial supporters, and all the speakers um, for their wonderful presentations and all the people for their wonderful re questions, remarks, comments. Uh, we had a very fruitful discussion today. Thank you very much.